Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we've seen a final round of activity to April 30th, the final deadline for uninsured Americans to sign up for coverage to avoid paying a penalty at tax time next year. One last chance. The federal exchange and most of the state-run exchanges offered people that extension due to what some perceive would be confusion over their tax obligation uh, for those who remained uninsured. I hear there was some brisk business reported on the federal exchange. Another interesting development, Margaret, is the White House is applying some pressure to those states that have refused to expand Medicaid for their uninsured residents living close to the poverty line. States like Texas and Florida have millions of uninsured residents between them that would qualify for Medicaid expansion guidelines, but those governors have refused to budge, and the federal government is now warning those states that they'll lose billions in hospital funds if they continue to refuse. Well, as you can imagine, this pressure is not sitting so well with Florida Governor Rick Scott and others who share his mindset. But we know for those states who've expanded coverage, it's a windfall that they badly needed. So leaving that money on the table and locking out millions of low-wage Americans from gaining coverage, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But something that does make sense today is our guest, who has a sense of what it takes to make health coverage affordable and accessible to large populations. Dr. Glenn Steele is president and CEO of Geisinger Health Systems in Pennsylvania has created an excellent blueprint for how coordinated care can work and work well. Well, the work of Geisinger and of Dr. Steele, uh, both their vision and what they've accomplished, is truly groundbreaking and already achieves what the Affordable Care Act is seeking to manifest, quality care, value-based care, controlling costs. So we really look forward to that conversation. And we're looking forward to Lori Robertson, who stops by. She's the managing editor of factcheck.org. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Glenn Steele in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A law is advancing through the California legislature that would require all children entering kindergarten to be vaccinated. The bill blocks parents from gaining a vaccine exemption for personal beliefs. Under the bill, only children with medical waivers would be exempt from the vaccines. A recent outbreak of measles took hold in Disneyland, sickening hundreds. Meanwhile, a recent longitudinal study of over 100,000 children vaccinated for measles, mumps, and rubella showed, once again, no correlation between vaccination and autism. However, women who have severe nausea and vomiting during pregnancy have a higher likelihood of having children with a neurological disorder. The study conducted at UCLA and USC found a link between severe nausea and vomiting early in pregnancy and a higher incidence of neurological anomalies in offspring. Researchers believe there may be a nutritional impact on early neural tube development. Fortunately, incidence of hyperemesis gravidarum, the severe vomiting disorder, is rather rare. About 19% of children exposed to the condition had attention deficit disorder compared to about 6% of the unexposed children. 
Bird flu is taking hold in the country. Avian flu now present in 12 states. More than 7 million birds have been destroyed thus far. The CDC says two strains have been genetically identified in this country, H5N2 and H5N8. And these particular strains are less likely to transfer to humans than other strands of the virus. And genetic tests on listeria bacteria found in several Bluebell ice cream products produced in Texas show the bacteria has been present in those products for at least five years. A number of illnesses have been reported and several deaths have occurred from ingesting the tainted ice cream, the third biggest brand in the U.S. The genetic evidence has led the company to recall all of its products now in the marketplace. And living longer could quite simply come down to morale. A study of seniors 85 and older showed the more pessimistic a person was, the more likely they were to die within five years. Conversely, those who were more optimistic in nature were more likely to live longer. The study conducted in Sweden showed those elderly adults who continued to find things to look forward to had a more optimistic attitude, and it directly impacted their sense of health, well-being, as well as longevity. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Glenn Steele, President and Chief Executive Officer of Geisinger Health Systems in Pennsylvania. Before joining Geisinger in 2001, Dr. Steele served as the Dean of the Biological Science Division and the Pritzker School of Medicine and as Vice President for Medical Affairs at the University of Chicago. Prior to that, he was Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School and Chairman of the Department of Surgery at the New England Deaconess Hospital in Boston. Dr. Steele has served in leadership roles in a number of of national organizations and is past chairman of the American Board of Surgery. He has earned numerous awards and accolades, including the recent Justin Ford Kimball Innovators Award from the American Hospital Association. He earned his MD at the NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Steele, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Good to be here. Thank yeah. you very much. You know, you've been at the helm of Geisinger Health Systems for 15 years now, an integrated care delivery system serving some 2.8 million patients in 44 counties throughout rural Pennsylvania. And I think uh, for our listeners, the word Geisinger is really synonymous with innovation and the delivery of high-quality care at great value. But when you took the helm at Geisinger, you were dealing with a demerger uh, with another large Pennsylvania health system. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners about your initial vision for how healthcare could be re-engineered back then when you started. Well, first of all, the strategy of, of putting an academic medical center together with a really good uh, doctor-led clinical organization was, I believe, ahead of its time. And, and I think the strategy was right. I think the transaction was wrong. My coming in at the time of the three-and-a-half-year merger-demerger was a perfect baseline because the the Geisinger part of the broken marriage still had fundamental advantages, tremendous uh, amount of caregiving, tremendous market share, and then this very unusual combination of of insurance company plus provider in the same market, again, in rural Pennsylvania. So my initial vision was to come in and repair the damage of the three-and-a-half-year dysfunctional merger uh, and then to see whether whether we could you know use this payer provider structure and this great credibility to fundamentally work both insurance company and uh, clinical caregiving work together to benefit the people that we served, uh, and that was and and still is to a large extent a fundamental difference in the relationship between insurance companies and uh, 
and healthcare providers. Well, Dr. Steele, I also want to uh, note how forward-thinking the vision was in terms of coverage, because long before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, you saw the most important pathway to improving population health was, was really making sure that patients had access to affordable health coverage and good health coverage. Can you describe for our listeners Geisinger's approach to self-insurance, affordable coverage, and also the reduction of malpractice costs that you ushered in, was, which is something that you've really received a lot of accolades for? How did you manage to shift the system to one that not only incentivized that quality of care, but the value of care as well? Well, first of all, we had the perfect setting here. High market share on the provider side, a high market share on the insurance side, and a very stable population. So if you've got that setting and you're actually more or less responsible for the health outcomes of a population over a lifetime, what you want to do is to give the most uh, high-quality care at the lowest cost possible. As total cost of care goes down, that comes directly to uh, affirm the, the business model on the insurance company side. And because we were in the same fiduciary, payer and provider, we could do the internal transfer pricing you know, and, and get some of that uh, value uh, benefit back to the providers who changed how they delivered the care. So it was it was pretty logical thing to conceptualize based on our patient population, mm-hmm. based on our demography, and based on our, our fiduciary structure. You know, you've said that this uh, self-insurance approach provided a perfect sweet spot for focusing in on the quality of care delivered at Geisinger. And in fact, you've been engaging in what we now refer to as care coordination before it became a trend in recent years. And, And in 2006, you launched a program called Proven Care which was founded on three principles, strict reliance on evidence-based standards in medicine, transparent and fixed prices for procedure and patient engagement. I should say that we've had Stephen Brill on our show, and I'm sure he would love this notion of transparent and fixed prices for procedures. And Could you tell our listeners how you managed to achieve these goals and what kind of impact it's had on the quality of care continuum and what other systems might learn from the experience at Geisinger? Well, first of all, Stephen Brill has been here, and and, and I think he kind of gets it. Uh, You know, he focuses on hospital pricing, which is completely irrational. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, And it's a symptom until I came to Geisinger. What what I believed was if you do a complex task like heart surgery or like hip replacement or like taking care of type 2 diabetes over, you know, a period of years – If there's unjustified variation in how you accomplish that task, it was my belief that, number one, that there would be lower quality, and number two, there there would be higher cost, because that's, in fact, the case with every complex task that's done. Mm -hmm. So at the real core of our so-called proven care was to re-engineer everything that was done from the time of a diagnosis, for instance, of of a blocked coronary artery, until the therapy was through, and to inventory how much variation was even within our system, and to take from evidence that's already existing all of what was felt to be best practice and make it the default. Make it the default because it would be the easiest thing to do. And that was the value reengineering experiment. And the question was, what would happen to already good outcome? And we found that it got better. And what would happen to cost? And we, and we found that already lower costs got much lower. Hmm. And that was really the essence of the issue. 
I also found out that if you do something substantive like value re-engineer, it doesn't get a lot of wowie-zowie PR unless it's in a sexy package. <laughs> and the sexy package was a single price. Uh-huh. And it was the single price that we negotiated between us as a payer and our providers. And it, it amounted to about 37 38% of our business. So we didn't bet the whole business on this guarantee. But for the guarantee, what we said was for the Geisinger payer and for their patients, we would establish a single price, including a discounted price for taking care of uh, any complications that would occur uh, uh, free uh, for 90 days. So the bet was that we would improve by a factor of two in order to break even for that part of our book of business. Now, the other important thing is that if we do any of this re-engineering and we show benefit to patients, we will apply it to all patients regardless of whom the payer is. It's just that the financial arrangement, you know, the sexy packaging, the single price, was only between us as provider and us as payer. Well, Dr. Steele, can you tell us a little bit about the use of your electronic health record in informing best practices, and also maybe just a little bit about some of the practice transformations that you've undertaken in the ambulatory setting? I'm I'm thinking particularly things like integrated behavioral health. I think a, a really important predicate to all the stuff that's happened over the last decade and a half was the decision in 1995 that the board at Geisinger made to go electronic. And Geisinger was uh, spread out over 44 rural and post-industrial counties. If we hadn't started to apply EHR uh, in the ambulatory setting, we we really wouldn't have been a system. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the first goal was simply to be able to to have a single electronic sign-in system. Another important thing is to understand that transactional EHRs only get you so much, Mm -hmm. even good ones like Epic, where we could actually get real data coming back to the folks who are in the trenches taking care of patients and, and begin to use those data to influence a change in how they were caring for patients. And then, of course, being able to get data from both the payer side of Geisinger and the provider side to feedback in order to target particular groups so that we could focus primarily on predicting who had to have a different kind of care. We're speaking today with Dr. Glenn Steele, President and Chief Executive Officer of Geisinger Health Systems in Pennsylvania. Before joining Geisinger in 2001, Dr. Steele served as the Dean of Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago, and prior to that, as Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Steele, you've obviously held a, a number of leadership roles in several of the nation's top teaching institutions. And from that vantage point, you really come to the conclusion it may not have been possible to achieve what you've achieved at Geisinger and those other large institutions. I want you to sort of share with our listeners your thought about the challenges other organizations face in their attempt to re-engineer their health systems as they try to meet the goals of the Affordable Care Act. The two major principles are uh, an obligation to ensure more folks uh, who we care for. The second major principle in the Affordable Care Act is this attempt to move away from fee-for-service But, you know, CMS and and what they're doing with Medicare is essentially committing to getting a huge amount of payment for Medicare switched over to uh, something, you know, that's population risk and away from units of work by 2018. 
And, the, and the, on the Medicaid front, I mean, the fact of the matter is Medicaid is going to be expanding greater than any other payer over the next few years. And most of the states can't afford to continue to pay Medicaid fee-for-service. And by the way, the Medicaid fee-for-service uh, leads, by and large, to really crappy care. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're going to see a huge shift to Medicaid managed care. And that's going to force us to do the same kind of value reengineering for those folks that we've done over the last 12 years for Medicare Advantage and for our commercial HMO. Because if we don't, two things will happen. Number one, those folks will continue to default to the emergency rooms Mm -hmm. in order to have any kind of care, not just emergency care, and that's ridiculous. And, of course, the second consequence is it'll be impossible for us economically. So that's kind of how I wrap it up around, you know, this, this turbulent but I think good progression through ACA. Well, Dr. Steele, I'd be really interested in hearing a little bit about your recruiting strategy. I've heard it described as a, a campaign that says something to the effect of to uh, come here, you'll have to leave three things behind, malpractice costs, traffic jams, and crime, which might be a pretty big <laughs> uh, incentive for people. But in all seriousness, rural communities can have a very difficult time, no matter how great the institution in luring practitioners. Maybe you could tell us some about the recruiting strategies that have brought that great talent pool Obviously, we're blessed by having a whole wonderful universities here. We're we're also blessed by having an interesting culture here. You know, people here, number one, they trust us as as physicians. They trust us as nurses. And then most people in this area actually would prefer a nursing trajectory than an investment banking trajectory. You know, I think that if you have a vision, which, you know, a number of us were able to establish early on, And if you can translate that vision into some early success, and if you can get Reed Abelson to, you know, to talk about it Mm -hmm. uh, above the fold in the front page of the New York Times. Right, that helps. (laughs) That always (laughs) helps. You're going to get a lot of pizzazz, right? Yeah. And then people will start coming to Shangri-La and trying to figure out what's going on here. I had no trouble recruiting at all, none, once we started having the pizzazz. The proof of the pudding most recently is, my successor. We got a guy, he was our first choice, and he's coming in here to Danville from Hollywood, for heaven's sake. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, you get your first choice from UCLA, it's proof positive that recruiting is not a problem. I I was just sort of pining on your uh, thought, and we've shared this notion that really it is all about the data warehouse. Uh, And you've been using this data warehouse uh, to inform a number of areas of research, basic science, epidemiological, and outcome research on large-scale uh, clinical trials. Uh, you must be keeping your IRB very busy, uh, and I believe you have about 95% of your patient population uh, willingly opts into many major research protocols. Can you share with our listeners uh, what you would say is unique about your data and your strategy about uh, research and uh, how do you see the future moving forward uh, in this field? Yeah, well, the first thing that's unique is is this stable population and high market share. So, so I mean, we have longitudinal data that for fifteen percent of our patients, you know, we have two and three generations of of of, uh, of access, and that's incredible. The second thing that's unique is that is the the ability to combine uh, uh, data from the insurance side of the house uh, in ways that are fundamentally um, not uh, not possible to do uh, in, on the on the uh, on the clinical side of the house. And, I mean, so there are things within the clinical database 
um, and and through our trans our our, uh, our transactional EHR uh, that that make it make it uh, uh, relatively uh, uh, relatively ad advantageous. But there are also things like predictive modeling, like looking at utilization variances and what have you that come from the insurance side of the house. And by putting all that together, it's extraordinarily powerful. Now, you know, again, that's fine, but if you don't put that stuff together in a usable manner so that when it goes out to your community practice primary care physicians, they can actually look at it and immediately with the patient and a patient's family in front of them do something different in their behavior, uh, then it, you know, then it doesn't, it, it doesn't end up uh, fundamentally uh, changing uh, the quality or the, or the cost structure. What we and what we've what we've done now, and again because of the incredible, um, the incredible, um, I think, uh, uh, partnering uh, that we have with our patients, is we've taken the next step where we're taking data and distributing it out to our patients and their families, so that they have a much more symmetrical relationship to us as providers, because it's that activation of the human beings that we're ultimately responsible to and responsible for that's going to make the next big transition in, in quality and value. And a good example of that is, is, our, is our commitment with, uh, uh, with a wonderful company called Regeneron to do whole exome sequencing for a huge number of our patients and, and an attempt to get closer to this concept of personalized medicine. Well, Dr. Steele, all very exciting. And uh, before we wrap this up, I am going to want to give you a chance to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, successor at Geisinger. But, but first, let me pose this question to you. Uh, as uh, robust and full and integrated a delivery system as you have, we all live within community and, and within a healthcare community. And I uh, don't know your geographic area that well, but I would imagine that you are uh, needing to work in your healthcare communities with the behavioral health organizations, substance abuse organizations, home care, school-based health centers, community health centers, retail clinics, urgent clinics, all the other uh, people who are in these systems. Maybe you just uh, take a moment, if, if you will, to just share with us how you work with the other players in your healthcare community, either through health information exchanges or, or through being at the table, really thinking about the health of your communities and populations and the public health component. Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, about about 15 years ago, when I got here, we we, we established a principle where we would take our uh, our uh, uh, health information technology, whether it was uh, Epic or whether it was the data warehouse or what have you, and we would become as non-proprietary as possible to take it out to non-geising or non-employed physician groups to take it out, uh, you know, up to the up, up to the regulatory thresholds of, of what was then called Stark Antitrust, right. take it out to as many uh, non-Geisinger uh, hospital platforms as possible. We were advantaged here because we always had a good balance sheet. Uh, we were, and, and we, we basically said, we're, we're not going to think about our, our IT uh, as, a, as a competitive advantage. We're going to think about how we use our IT and change healthcare as a competitive advantage. But let's get as many people in this area uh, with a big, needy, high disease severity, static population uh, rolled into our commitment to, to do lifetime uh, health status improvement, regardless of whether it was just Geisinger taking care of them or whether it was non-Geisinger. So that's number one. The second thing is, uh, you know, we, we really did uh, end up with one of the most functional HIEs 
health information exchanges that has allowed us to reach out to non-Geisinger skilled nursing facilities, non-Geisinger non -Geisinger, uh, um, uh, community-based uh, uh, health care centers, uh, so that we can actually share information, which is critical. And the third thing, and this is after our big bet on the Medicaid MCO uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, we are forced to reach out to the uh, federally qualified healthcare centers, the FQHCs, uh, in order to function uh, as closely as we can with them, similar to how we function in our own owned community practices. And, and without, without those outreach, uh, without, without those outreach uh, sites, without, without that attempt to actually take as much of our uh, enabling technology as possible out, to, you know, out, we, we just, you know, we are just not going to achieve our, our, our mission. So, so that would be, now, now the, the behavioral thing is a very interesting thing because as you're probably aware, there's still, there's still this, this demand uh, that's a regulatory demand, uh, usually state by state, to outsource all of the behavioral health uh, uh, budgeting and, and caregiving. And that's hogwash. That needs to change. Uh, but we have a good partner. Our, our behavioral health partner for the Medicaid uh, population is a, is a part of the UPMC uh, uh, health plan. It, it's very well run, and we work well with them. But quite frankly, we're advocating to have the responsibility for behavioral health actually what's called carved in to the right. responsibility for all the other kind of health. And that's, and that, you know, that's an advocacy process that is underway. Great. We've been speaking with Dr. Glenn Steele, President and CEO of Geisinger Health Systems in Pennsylvania. You can learn more about their work by going to geisinger.org or following them on Twitter at Geisinger Health. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for joining us at Conversations on Healthcare. It's my pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul has now officially declared that he will run for president. Paul's April 7th announcement prompted us to take a look back at claims by Paul that we have reviewed in the past, and some concern health care. In 2013, for instance, Paul wrongly said that under the Affordable Care Act, you will go to jail if you don't buy health insurance and refuse to pay the tax penalty. The law actually states that those who don't pay the penalty for not having insurance can't be subject to any criminal prosecution. Shortly after the law passed, the IRS commissioner at the time said the law precludes jail. The law also says that the IRS can't use liens or levies to enforce payment of the penalty. What can the IRS do to enforce compliance? The commissioner said in 2010 that violators could face offsets against future tax refunds. More recently, in February, Paul talked about vaccinations in a TV interview, wrongly saying that many children have developed profound mental disorders after vaccinations. We found that severe reactions have occurred in extremely rare cases, but there is no evidence that any currently recommended vaccine causes mental disorders in otherwise healthy children. Paul later walked back his comments, telling the New York Times that he believes vaccines are safe and effective. 
And that's my fact check for this week. For more on past claims from Senator Rand Paul, visit our website at factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One in six people in the world lacks access to drinking water or basic sanitation, and statistics show that diarrhea is the leading cause of death for these populations. But access to clean and potable water continues to present a real challenge. In Africa, the numbers are staggering, with 46% of the residents of sub-Saharan Africa having no direct access to clean water. In 2005, artist Tracy Hawkins went to Tanzania to see what she could do about it. Clay pot water filtration has been around for several hundred years, where simple clay pots lined in the bottom with silver oxide can remove up to 99% of the impurities from most water sources, but no one had undertaken a dedicated program to produce and distribute these pots. Tracy founded the Singisi Pottery Project with a local activist and began making the pots with local artisans in this region of Tanzania. By 2008, she and her team were able to get a factory built so that they could increase production. The project has served multiple communities and continues to expand. Independent researchers have determined the system to be safe, effective, and the best part, the health of entire communities has been improved significantly once each village resident is provided with a clay filtration system. The pots are in expensive to produce, easy to handle, and the factory has also created jobs for local residents. They have since changed the name of the organization to Safe Water Ceramics of East Africa and have continued plans to replicate their successful model across the region. A simple, easily manufactured solution that improves access to potable water for a community that previously had few options, one that improves health, well-being, and economic conditions at the same time? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.